Well, in the last month, we have been living inside Jesus' longest recorded parable, and certainly one of his most impactful. We observed a few weeks ago when we started, Jesus' parables, the stories that Jesus told, they taught more than just some kind of put that in your pocket for later takeaways. He told stories that were paradigm shifting. They were masterful, many dramas that broke damaging stereotypes and unhelpful mental models, and they left you unpacking ideas about God and life long after hearing them. That's definitely been true of this story, this parable we've been spending time in, the parable of the two lost sons. Now, there are a few things I don't want to let this series conclude uh, without sharing. This is the last Sunday in this series. We'll start a new one next week. And there are a couple things I also want to reiterate. Uh, all of it can be found in a good look at the final words of the father to the elder son. Now, we heard them last week at the end of the sermon, but they deserve a deeper hearing because they reveal the father's heart and they describe life in our father's house, in God's kingdom. Now, we're going to do a really quick recap, though I encourage you, if you haven't, go online and take in all the messages of this series. And I don't say that because we're such great preachers, but because this parable is so rich. So here's a quick recap. A father had two sons. The younger does a terrible thing and asks his father for his share of the inheritance and then does terrible things by wasting it all in a faraway land. But he comes home to say he's sorry and immediately is joyously forgiven by the father. Now the older son, who's never strayed, can barely believe that his little brother is getting a party and not punishment. He is stuck in resentment and self-righteousness. He's missing out on the beauty of grace. And the father then pleads with this elder son to come in and join the celebration. And the father then says these words. Like I said, we heard them last week, but we're going to do a deep dive into them this week as we wrap up the series. This is in Luke 15. We're going to start in verse 31. That's on page 714 if you grabbed a Bible from the Bible cards in the back or one in the comments. And if you don't own an easy-to-read copy of the Bible, you can always write your name in the front of one of those, make it yours, and take it home to keep. Luke 15, starting in verse 31. The father to the elder son standing outside the party, refusing to go in. My son, he says, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Let's pray together. Father, with our Bibles open before us and our hearts and minds, we pray also open before you. We ask, God, that you would speak to us, teach us, do your work. Lord, use this time not for anyone to remember a single thing I said, but the one thing that you needed to say to them to each of us. Let this word land on every heart. Holy Spirit, be our teacher in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So let's move through what this father is saying to this elder son. My son, he says, you're always with me. Everything I have is yours. This elder brother couldn't see this, didn't see this, refused to see this. He only saw what he thought he needed and didn't think he had. He believed he lacked he believed he was being treated unfair. His father is reminding him that he lacks 
nothing. And when you and I can realize as we're exploring, living out this life in Jesus Christ, as we're discovering what life in God is like, when you and I can realize, truly grasp, that the Father in the parable is the God of the universe, and that these words to his Son can legitimately be God's words to us, we will be blown off our feet. My son, my daughter, you are always with me. And certainly, by implication, and probably even more true, he is always with us. And everything I have is yours. This reminds me of, of a prayer the Apostle Paul uh, an early Christian who uh, spread the message of Jesus throughout his area of the world, uh, a prayer that he prayed for the Ephesian Christians. You can find this in the book of Ephesians chapter 1. This is a prayer that he prays for these Christians. He says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I love that phrase, the eyes of your heart. Did you know your heart had eyes? In a way, it really does. Because the way we see the world comes through the condition of our heart. And so he's saying, we, I pray that your heart would be enlightened, full of light, illuminated by who? God, so that you could see things through and in just exactly that Light. I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. In other words, in God, with God, we have all we need to live this life that he has for us. To be a son or daughter of this father is enough. But this son had his own dissatisfaction, and he couldn't seem to shake it. Many of us can be like this, essentially sons and daughters who are lost, though we never leave home. This is definitely part of my story. Growing up in church, I chose Jesus as my Lord and obeyed him in baptism when I was about 12 years old. And about a year or two later, I even strongly sensed a call to vocational ministry as a young teenager. But then I definitely entered a time in which those realities faded into the background. Though my church attendance and involvement would seem solid, I was really, in my heart and mind, wandering all over the place, for sure. And it really wasn't until a few years later that I was confronted with the fact that my belief in Jesus was not translating into anything resembling conviction or devotion or obedience. I was cut to the heart by that fact, by who I was becoming and how I was treating the amazing love and grace of God, I had a bit, maybe a lot, of both of those sons in me. Sometimes I still do. Maybe you can relate. But that decision that I ended up making when I was about 18 to completely, intentionally, however imperfectly, follow Jesus has profoundly affected every day of my life since. But there was a good season there where I was a lot like the older brother, in church every week, but far from God. And that, my friends, can happen to any of us. Today may be the day that you make that same decision. Maybe you can, when I, when I tell that story, you, there's something in you that says, mm, that's kind of like me, maybe even right now. Here, but not here, right? 
here, but not here. So let me encourage you. You can scan that QR code on the seat back in front of you. You'll see a button there that says, Say Yes to Jesus. You can go to outlookchurch.org slash yes. But just know that we would love to begin a conversation with you about what saying yes to Jesus looks like. Maybe for the first time, maybe for the first time in a long time, to say yes to Jesus. To hear those words, my son, you're always with me. My daughter, you're always with me. And everything I have is yours. So this is how the father begins uh, with the older son. But he goes on. But we had to celebrate and be glad. Remember the two parables that precede this one. We talked about it in our first sermon of the series. The first uh, parable, because Jesus tells three in a row here that have a theme. The first one, a shepherd finds a lost sheep. And what does a shepherd say when he finds a sheep? Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. Second parable is about a woman who loses a, a coin and then finds it. What does she say? Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In both of these parables, Jesus lets his listeners know that there is rejoicing and celebration in heaven. He literally says, in the presence of the angels of God, there's a a celebration. When just one person repents, that means to leave our self-centered ways behind us and turn to God. Celebration when that happens. And so here now we hear the Father saying the same thing in his own way, rejoice with me. We had to celebrate and be Glad. Literally, what he's saying is it was necessary to be delighted, to make merry, to gladden ourselves, to rejoice, to be joyful. This doesn't just put the dad in a good mood. Remember what happened. Dad is throwing a party. He's killing the fattened calf, something you wouldn't do just any day of the week. And he's invited everyone over. There is music. There is dancing, we heard. And this is the heart of our Father God. We had to be glad. It is the thing to do, and it can be our heart, too. Let's think for a moment about the necessity of joy, because I wonder sometimes if we think of it enough. In Philippians chapter 3, and then again in chapter 4, we read, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, I never get tired of telling you these things. I do it to safeguard Your faith, and later he repeats himself, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. What did the shepherd say? What did the widow say? Or what did the woman say? Rejoice with me, because what I lost has now been found. The Father is saying the same, and it is a command for us. Friends, ours is a God who makes gladness a command, and then makes that command achievable by being a never-ending always dependable source of goodness, encouragement, strength, love, and joy. If we stop and think about it, too often we're joyless, graceless, or at least we're running pretty low in that area. Christians, sadly, can even be known for this. The people with the least amount of joy, or sometimes even the least amount of grace. And the irony is huge, right? Because that's the opposite of what we've been called to and what we've been given We have the chance to be the most joyful and the most full of grace people on the planet. So let's, in our day-to-day lives, friends, find the joy. We need it more than we realize. We can hear the Father's voice to us saying we had to celebrate. We had to. We had no choice in the matter. Celebration was the thing 
to do. And let's pause to remind ourselves that there's reasons to celebrate. Sometimes we can get discouraged by the state of the world, and we can forget that, you know what, there are people coming to Jesus every day. Sometimes we lose hope. Maybe we have people in our lives, we wonder, we pray for them, we love them. They seem far from God, it breaks our heart. We wonder if they'll ever come to Jesus. But God is constantly at work in people's lives. And we have to keep our hope up. Amen? We have to find the joy. Sometimes we have to work for it. But there are things worth celebrating. And every time a soul says yes to Jesus, celebration is happening in heaven. Let it be on earth as well. Every salvation is worth a celebration if we choose to see it. Mother Teresa once said, I love this quote, joy is a net of love by which you can catch souls. That we shouldn't underestimate our joy for the attractive power that it contains. That that joy is a a net of love as we love others and our joy uh, about who they are and God's work in them shows it's attractive. It draws people to God. And I can't help but wonder if that's what the father wants for this elder son. Some joy, because a good thing has just happened and you're not seeing it, he said. You're not happy, you should be. And speaking of catching souls, I kind of feel like the father could have said, we could have had this party a long time ago. And that takes us to our next point. We had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours. There's something that grabs me about the way the father says, this brother of yours. Remember, the older son had just spitefully said to the father, but this son of yours, who has squandered your property, comes home, and on and on. And at this point, the father reminds him, yes, he's my son, as you are. But this whole time, he's been your brother. And this is one of the most convicting, clarifying moments in the parable, I think this brother of yours. Think about the story of the first human family. Cain, Abel, two sons of Adam and Eve. Cain kills his brother, Abel. And in Genesis 4, verse 9, it says that the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother, Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? Powerful question. Am I a defiant question, right? Kind of a selfish, self-centered question. Am I my brother's keeper? And the implied answer, of course, is yes. Yes. It's a lesson God's been trying to teach us since the very beginning. Yes, we are, in a very real sense, the keeper of our brothers and sisters. We have a responsibility to care for one another. The elder son doesn't seem to care. Doesn't seem to care that his brother is back. Doesn't care if his brother is alive or dead. And in a real sense, has had already left him for dead. At any time, he could have gone out and searched for his brother, tried to rescue him, meet him in his destitution, in his pain, and bring him home. He did not. He just stayed home and sulked. Jesus dealt with this in his own earthly family, not that he was the one lost, though he was rejected. In John chapter 7, we read that uh, for not even his brothers believed in him. We don't know how much... uh, We don't know much about how Jesus approached that level of heartache, rejection from his own immediate family, but we do know after his resurrection, 
1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that Jesus appeared to his brother, or you would more accurately say half-brother, James. He went out, Jesus, the true elder brother, went out and got that wanderer. James went from not believing in Jesus to becoming a leader in the church in Jerusalem. When he came home, he came all the way home because Jesus went to get him. James knew firsthand what it was like to wander from the truth and then come home. Perhaps that's why he closed his letter in the New Testament with these words. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, let's let those words land on us for a second. Someone should bring that person back. Now, we can't make anyone come to Jesus, but we sure can make it clear that they're loved Amen? That they're not forgotten? That they're cared for? That you've not stopped praying for them? That your eye is on them and that God's eye never leaves them? Someone should bring that person back. He says, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way, and we all have errors in our ways, will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. That's God's Aim to bring back, to turn from error, to save from death, to cover over sin. This is the Father's heart. It's the heart of God. What we would love for that older brother to say is, Dad, this is awesome. I love what you're doing here. I love you, and I love your heart. Sadly, that's not what's happening. Sadly, the brother did not go and look for and at least attempt to rescue his younger brother. So here is the meta-narrative of this story. Like, the overarching narrative is this. Jesus is telling this story to both, remember, those who are categorized as sinners, younger sons in the parable, and those considered religious leaders, elder sons. That's the audience of his parable. The religious leaders are doing nothing but condemning and ostracizing the very people they should be sharing God's love and grace with. They have all the truth of the scriptures practically memorized, yet they keep that beautiful truth to themselves. And they certainly don't let it soak in so that it affects their actions, their compassion for those far from God. So here's where it gets meta. Jesus is the true elder brother, the one that's needed. He's going to do right there in the dust and dirt of, the, of Jerusalem and the, and the area around it, in front of the, these very people, he's going to do what no one else is doing. This son of the father has left his home in splendor and arrived at the distant land to find and return and rescue all the father's lost children who will follow him home. In Hebrews chapter 2, it says, Jesus, who makes people holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So he's not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. Jesus is the elder brother, not of the parable, but of our need, the brother we need. He came to the rescue, as he once put it to Zacchaeus, to seek and to save the lost, anyone who's lost and far from home. He calls us now to follow in his footsteps and be good elder brothers and sisters as well. This brother of yours, the father reminds him, was dead and is alive again. Now, if, I, if you're the elder brother in the parable, you might be like, whoa, 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 dad, aren't you exaggerating a little bit? I mean, really dead and alive again. But from God's perspective, 
this is the truth of our situation for all of us as human beings. When we wander from the giver of true life, we head toward spiritual death, which is the truest kind of death. Back to Ephesians for a second, because the theme is there as well. In chapter 2, it says, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. You used to live in sin, just like the rest of the world. All of us, Paul wrote, used to live that way. We're all in that same boat. It's sinking, and we're in it. But God, someone say, but God. But God, who is so rich in mercy, like the father of the parable, rich in mercy, that in love, that, and he loved us so much that even though we were dead because of our sins, he gave us life when he raised Christ from the dead. So the words of the Father, your son, I mean your brother was dead and is alive again, is not hyperbole. It is accurate. Because spiritual death, being far from the Father, is the truest and fullest type of death. This is one of the great things about this parable, in my opinion. It tells the true story of sin. We can hear that word sin. You've just heard it a couple times in that passage. You might even be a little turned off, like, oh boy, yeah, I'm in church. We're talking about sin. I'm just going to feel guilty and shameful and all that stuff. But that's not really what's happening here. When the Bible really talks about sin, it's talking about my, my general bent toward my own lordship. You know, I, I want to be in charge of my life. I think I know better. We just think of it as a list of nasty things we're not supposed to do. But honestly, it's about my own sense of rejecting God to do life on my own terms. And one of the greatest things about this parable is it tells the true story of sin, which is not so much breaking the rules as breaking our Father's heart. It's, about not, not, it's not finding the thrill of life on our own. But really, sin leads to the desperate dead end that it inevitably brings. It's not defining our relationship with God, think of the older brother, by our work for him or our obedience to him but by entering into the party of grace he's throwing for anyone who will accept his invitation. This is the, a, a far more accurate picture of what we're really talking about when we talk about sin and grace and forgiveness or being far from God. It's being dead and now alive again, lost and found. Lost and found is the way the father puts it. Safe and sound is the way the servant put it to the elder brother. And this is where I want to leave us as we wrap up our look at this powerful parable. Keep coming home. That the home of the father has its lights on and its doors open. And he's there ready and waiting for you. And in fact, in our parable that we get to live out, the elder brother has come to our rescue. So keep coming home. I once was lost, the old hymn says, but now I'm found. Stay found, right? Enjoy being found. Rejoice in your foundness, right? When we come together every Sunday morning and we get to worship God, what we're doing is coming back to the Father's house to say, thank you for finding me. I'm so glad to be your son, your daughter. And we can do this, not just generally, like agree with the concept. Yes, I'm found. That's a good thing. But every day we can keep returning to this embrace. If prayer is anything, it's that. Henry Nouwen once wrote, In solitude and silent communion with God in prayer, I have to kneel before the Father, just as the prodigal son did upon his return, and put my ear against his chest and listen without interruption to the heartbeat of God. A heartbeat that says, You're loved. I care. I'll never leave you. You're with me. 
This is the home where all our true hopes live, and it's a home we get to keep coming to. And by all means, make yourself at home. You are a full son and daughter. Everything the Father has is yours. My son, the Father said, it's enough to be a child of the Father. You're always with me, and everything I have is yours. Let's live like that's true, always with him and rich in him. We had to celebrate and be glad Make joy the persistent mark of our living, no matter what. It will only attract others to our Father's house. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again, he's lost and is found. It's become true of us, so many of us who've said yes to Jesus. It can still be true of others. It can be true for you. Let it be. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this truth. And we ask that you would help us to internalize it, to make it our own, And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your bread and your cup with you, I'd invite you to grab it. Every week here at Outlook, we take communion. That's what we call it, communion. We commune with the Father. We we do what Jesus asks us to do, and that is remember him. We come to this table laid out by our Father to remember the sacrifice of our elder brother. And so when we take the bread, what we're saying is, Jesus, thank you for letting your body be broken, that we could receive grace and forgiveness from the Father. So let's do that and thank him and take the bread together. And when we take the cup, what we're saying is we we raise a glass, we raise a toast, we're, we're gladdened in our hearts with joy at the at the salvation that we've been given, and we're just so grateful. And so when we take the cup, we're saying, Jesus, you let your blood be shed and sacrifice for us, because that's what love does. It sacrifices for us. Let's take and drink together.